Welcome to Smoky Mountain Air, a podcast from Great Smoky Mountains Association that explores the diverse, natural, and cultural history of Great Smoky Mountains National Park. I'm Valerie Polk, videographer and publications associate. And I'm Karen Key, Senior Publications Specialist at GSMA. Today we'll be talking to Dr. William Turner and Dr. Ted Olson, co-hosts of an exciting new podcast miniseries we'll be launching through Smoky Mountain Air called Sepia Tones, Exploring Black Appalachian Music. This miniseries can be found right here through this podcast with new episodes every other month. Dr. William Turner is a longtime African-American studies scholar who first rose to prominence as co-editor of the groundbreaking Blacks in Appalachia. That book was published in 1985. He was also a research assistant to Roots author Alex Haley. Turner retired as Distinguished Professor of Appalachian Studies and Regional Ambassador at Berea College. His memoir, called The Harlan Renaissance, is forthcoming from West Virginia University Press in 2021. Dr. Ted Olson is a professor of Appalachian Studies at East Tennessee State University and the author of many books, articles, reviews, encyclopedia entries, and oral histories. Olson has produced and compiled a number of documentary albums of traditional Appalachian music, including GSMA's On Top of Old Smokey and Big Bend Killing. He's received a number of awards in his work as a music historian, including seven Grammy nominations. During each episode of the Sepia Tones podcast miniseries, Karen and I will be handing over the hosting reins to Dr. Turner and Dr. Olson, as they explore the many Black roots and branches of Southern Appalachian music. They'll invite musicians and experts to join them in the discussion and share recordings old and new. The series is funded through the African American Experience Project in collaboration with Great Smoky Mountains National Park. We spoke to Dr. William Turner and Dr. Ted Olson on an online video chat. You know my home is across the Smoky Mountain. My home is across that smoky mountain. My home is across the smoky mountain. I never expect to see you anymore. Welcome, Dr. Turner and Dr. Olson to Smoky Mountain Air. Thank you. We're glad to be here. Good to be here. So tell us about the name you've chosen for the special series, Sepia Tones. Um, I hear that our creative director, Francis Figer at GSMA, contributed to part of that name. And Dr. Turner, you added to that to give it another layer of context. So tell us a little bit about how y'all came up with that. A few weeks ago, we were discussing when Francis, I think the idea was we knew what the subtitle would be, right? Was that Black Appalachian Music or something like that? And the whole idea was what would be the, the, the engine, the front end of that? and so. I think Frances put tones, and while I didn't ask her directly, uh, it seemed to me that tones was a play on words that could be skin tones, as the first thought I had, or the second notion of tones as in music tones. When I looked at that, I snapped immediately to uh, a memory of uh, a very popular magazine in the uh, African-American South, primarily, but it was actually all over the country. Three major magazines when I was growing up. Uh, 
And uh, one, of course, two are much better known called Ebony and Jet magazines, which came out of Chicago. But there was another one called Sepia, a real sophisticated, slick magazine. And I suggested we put Sepia in front of tones so that we would have this notion that Sepia, which refers to some kind of fish, I understand, but I always knew it also meant a kind of natural color. So the color of autumn leaves and the fall in Appalachia struck me. And uh, that's where I came into, let's put this as sepia tones so that people might hear and see the tones that were coming out of Black musicians' heads and hearts and feelings and experiences, as well as uh, they could play the same kind of music as anybody else in Appalachia. Well, I think sepia tones is a great name for the series. What are you hoping listeners will gain from a discussion of Black Appalachian music in this podcast over the next several months? I hope people will will, uh, gain something Ed Cabell talked about a long time ago in his work when he first came out with this idea of uh, studying Black Appalachia and its people, uh, Black Appalachian people and their cultures. And Ed had an article once called Black Invisibility and Racism in Appalachia that he wrote in the late 60s. And so there's this notion of uh, uh, invisibility uh, that uh, the idea in that old saying, if a tree falls in the woods and there's nobody around to hear it, did it make a sound? And so in a metaphorical way, what we're doing with this podcast, I know is to say there were a lot of black sounds coming out of the mountains that just as with food waves and other cultural elements, uh, you cannot have Appalachian music without the tones, the input, the compositions, the ideas, the experiences of black people in Appalachia who were always there from the earliest times Uh, Even if one looks at the date marked in the 1619, when the first African slaves were brought into Port O'Connor, Virginia, uh, long before then, in the 1500s, there were Moroccans, Africans, who had accompanied Spanish explorers into what we know as the Smoky Mountains at that point, a couple hundred years before 1619, uh, at least 150 years before then, so that What I hope we will do is, as a reader might be listening to this podcast, they would then say, oh, I didn't know that. Or they might say, well, I'm so glad that other people now will know what I've known a long time. And so we'll we'll be educating young people who have no idea about it uh, and those more seasoned people who had some idea about it. But during this podcast, we will be talking to specific individuals mentioning specific references to times and people and places and milestones so that that's one of that's what we would accomplish we would we would we would kind of mark a spot on a tree and and people will know that from this time forward in 2021 uh the great smoky mountains association most appropriately it seems to me when you think of the appalachia You can't help but think of the Smoky Mountains so that uh, a number of things are coming here together that are are cultural, historical, that are geographical, that are political, that are musical, and they're all kind of coming together at one time. 
Well, we're looking forward to you casting some light on these musical influences that people might not know about. So tell us about some of the musicians that are really key in the history of Black Appalachian music. Names that you think will certainly come up during this discussion. Some of our listeners might not be as familiar with some of the material. So if we could just know some of the names and what they mean to the music. When we spoke with Sparky Rucker in our conversation for the first podcast, Sparky read off a list of some of his favorite musicians. And it was very poignant because a lot of the musicians that he mentioned, certainly they were people that he knew personally, which meant that there was a great deal of of affection and connection in his celebration of them as musicians and as people. To mention some of the other names of other Black musicians from Appalachia, one could certainly do a who's who of well-known and well-respected musicians from the Appalachian region. I'll mention a few of those. Uh, Bessie Smith, um, we could mention you know, more contemporary artists, Bill Withers, Nina Simone. The list of great musicians in, in American music uh, you know, includes a lengthy list of well-recognized Black musicians from Appalachia. Um, Sparky talked about a number of them. We will be talking about more of them throughout the podcast series. But those names, uh, the handful that I mentioned, are, you know, that's the tip of the iceberg. But we certainly hope to look at other musicians from Appalachia who are less well-known. I mean, one opportunity that we have here is to, uh, shall we say, strengthen and um, diversify the dialogue about uh, what is Appalachia and who are the great Appalachian musicians. Frankly, a lot of the great Appalachian musicians aren't well-known. And of course, we're also trying to introduce an effort to contextualize the music. I mean, the music is wonderful in and of itself, but it says so much about culture and history and and human experience. And and, and so to talk about music is, I, I feel, a very important part of the music appreciation experience. It's one thing to understand how the music is structured, but it's another thing to know the backstories to the music, to know how to interpret the lyrics, how to interpret the mood of the of the performer, how to uh, understand the subtleties of the stylistic approach that the musician takes. And, and then, of course, uh, personal connections to the musical world that people are keeping alive in their music. We want to find those backstories. The podcast series provides a Uh, you know, kind of like a table around which people can sit and chat and open up about things that matter. Tell us a little bit about your background and how you both come to have interest in music of Black Appalachians. Dr. Turner, let's start with you. I think I became interested in this type of music through the love for it that uh, was exhibited by my father. Uh, My dad was born in 1917, and my father was born in Wise County, Virginia, in a little place called Coburn. Quite frankly, amongst my family and my friends, most of whose parents had migrated to the coal fields where I was born in Harlan County, Kentucky. Uh, many of them were from Alabama. 
central Alabama. My father was uh, from Southwest Virginia. So his mother would have been born in Southwest Virginia uh, in 1896. His grandmother was born in Lee County in Pennington Gap, Virginia in the 1850s. So my father grew up in a, in a place where old time bluegrass mountain music was all he heard all of his life. And in fact, his own accent and dialect, you might say, was much more mountain and in the view of some people uh, quite whack than it was black because dad had this this kind of typical Appalachian uh, way of talking. I'm sure if you've met people, black people from the mountains of Southwest Virginia uh, who grew up in rural areas, uh, in many instances, there was not much difference in the dialect and the way of speaking of uh, black people and white people. They you couldn't tell one from the other in many instances, my grandmother and grandfather's uh, on that side. So uh, my dad was always a devotee to uh, 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 what was uh, considered by many of our black friends, white mountain music, and he really liked it. And he liked the Grand Ole Opry. And besides that, when you think about where I grew up, the local radio station, which came out of Cumberland, Kentucky, in Harlan County, uh, uh, it did not play what we call black music. Uh, they played country music all the time, whether you liked it or not. And the only uh, avenue to music that probably permeated most black communities was through WLAC in Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, uh, that was a clear channel 50 watt station in the 50s. Uh, so in some sense, the Grand Ole Opry, that type of music, uh, my father, as I said earlier, had grown up in Southwest Virginia. So I kind of heard it all my life. And I basically got interested in it later when I came to the Laurel Jones when I was a grown man, when I went to Berea College and did some work there uh, in the late 70s, when I got to know people like Sparky Rucker uh, and uh, learned a lot from him. And of course, in the last uh, few years, uh, I've gotten to know uh, Ted Olson, who's taught me about everything I know about this type of music. We get compartmentalized into different genres of music so that Black music in my generation, I was thought of generally, one thought generally of blues, rhythm and blues, rock and roll uh, that came out of the uh, James Brown, Sam Cooke, um, Otis Redding, uh, Aretha Franklin, and in my mother's generation, going all the way back to say Ma Rainey, that kind of blues, or, uh, or the lady out of Chattanooga, Bessie Smith, that was kind of considered black music. Uh, in fact, Bessie Smith had a piece of my grandmother used to play all the time, Black Mountain Blues. And in Harlan County, when she made that in 1933, uh, uh, that was considered kind of like black music. So that's essentially what I, what I meant by that. Uh, so that when you hear people like some of the folks we're doing in this podcast, you would not associate them with black musicians because dulcimers and fiddles and guitars and banjos were not exactly the, the instruments uh, associated with, say, the music of Black people, uh, except, say, in the Delta of Mississippi and that kind of blues. Well, we're very excited to hear the music and the guests you'll be bringing to the podcast. Dr. Olson, could you tell us a little bit about your background and how you became interested in this music? I grew up in the big city in, in Washington, D.C. You know, my, my older brother, for example, 
he was a musician and had a, a soul band. And so being in D.C. growing up during the civil rights era was an interesting time. I've delivered newspapers, the Washington Post, and I kind of followed along the, uh, the happenings in terms of civil rights. Not so much the legislation as much of that happened earlier, but the kind of the aftermath of, of race relations in Washington, D.C. and the rest of the country. And I found that with music in my house growing up and a love for uh, R&B and, and jazz and, of course, every other kind of music, classical and folk and, and rock, my home environment was steeped in music and much of it was black music. Being in D.C., I got to know a number of you know, black musicians pretty well as, as a kid. I used to attend the Smithsonian Folk Life Festival, which, of course, then had a different name. Festival of American Folk Life, I think it was called way back when. But uh, I befriended John Jackson, who was a terrific Foothills bluesman from Virginia who uh, lived in D.C. And uh, I had a few conversations with him when I was very young. Um, he told me about his life as a gravedigger, and he told me about his music and how his music expressed his experiences growing up in the foothills of uh, the Blue Ridge. All that was very, you know, a deep impression upon me. And I kind of set off in life both to replicate the music that I loved. I, I suppose uh, imitation is the highest form of flattery. And I was deeply moved by what I heard and tried to, you know, recreate it in my own experience. While, while still a teenager, I uh, kind of migrated into the mountains myself and lived in West Virginia and befriended musicians of all backgrounds. I learned from people who had learned music within the family, as opposed to from records or from you know, songbooks or that sort of thing, although I suppose that those were in their experiences as well. But uh, we're talking about true traditional musicians that I, I befriended. And so I kind of understood learning about music from all different angles, both kind of more formally and also from within uh, community uh, environments and within kind of bonds of friendship. And along the way, I became kind of a scholar, I, I guess you would say, of of Appalachian music, generally speaking. And uh, of course, my interest in Appalachian music was always the large tent definition of Appalachian music. I loved all kinds of, of music, um, you know, both the traditional music and the more popular music from within the region and beyond. And uh, as a scholar, I found myself studying Black music in places like uh, Mississippi and Kentucky and, and then moving to East Tennessee. Uh, I continued to study musical traditions from multiple backgrounds, including from African-American communities. Um, I befriended people like uh, Sparky Rucker and Edith Baker and you know, a handful of other folks from the African-American community who taught me a, a great deal about uh, you know, how to understand the musical expressions uh, made within those communities. And so I, I loved all kinds of music, and I tried to play uh, as many different kinds of music as I could. I took on the banjo, which of course has deep African connections, and uh, learned some historically African-American styles on the banjo, and sang some uh, blues songs to the best of my ability. Of course, it was all in adoration of the music and in deference to the people who made the music. You know, I had no illusions that I was any way, shape, or manner within the tradition, but I was respectfully kind of trying to educate perhaps new generations about the, the values and the beauties of these uh, musical traditions. I 
got the key to the highway Feel that I'm bound to go Gonna leave it running Cause walking is most slow I'm going back to the bottom Dr. Olson, you've been involved in several music projects with Great Smoky Mountains Association before. Would you mind telling us about some of them? As a scholar, I began a kind of a collaboration, I guess is a good way to put it, with Great Smoky Mountains Association, where we have thus far worked on four different CD projects of uh, celebrating Appalachian music. And you know, the first one was uh, old time Smoky Mountain music, which encompassed 1930s era sound recordings made by Joseph Sargent Hall in the Smokies. And, you know, that was predominantly a, you know, a white musical tradition that Hall had documented there in the Smokies as people were leaving to create the park. That CD surprised, I think, a lot of people as far as that the Smokies at one time had been rather heavily populated and that the cultures of folks who lived in the Smokies had very rich family and community music traditions, as well as, of course, other traditions. Um, But we documented the music traditions on that CD and on the subsequent CD that we made with the association. And that was the Carol Best and the White Oak String Band CD that was pretty important because it documented the emergence of a new style of banjo playing by Carol Best, who was a native of the Smokies in the 1950s. He's considered one of the great pioneers of the melodic banjo style, which is now quite popular in bluegrass, in the bluegrass world. The next two were recordings made of contemporary musicians revisiting the older Appalachian repertoire. And we definitely tried to have an kind of an open tent approach when making those uh, recordings. And so we invited uh, people from all different backgrounds to participate in in the recording of Appalachian musical traditions for those two CDs. One of those is called On Top of Old Smoky, New Old Time Smoky Mountain Music. The other is called Big Bend Killing, the Appalachian Ballad Tradition. And we tried in both those CDs to incorporate Black music traditions and, and the blues ballad tradition associated with Black performers, as well as a you know, the British uh, Celtic ballad traditions and music traditions. So we really did try to portray in those CDs the true essence of Appalachian music, which is that Appalachia is a melting pot of many different cultures, and we tried to display that. One other project I thought I'd mention, since it definitely relates to interest in Black music in Appalachia, was a box set that I did um, working with a gentleman named Tony Russell, who's a British music scholar, Uh, We worked together to create a box set called the Knoxville Sessions. The reason that's uh, so important, we had a conversation for this podcast with Sparky Rucker, who grew up in Knoxville and talked about the Knoxville music scene. And on that box set, the Knoxville Sessions, Tony Russell and I were able to locate all of the original recordings made in 1929 and 1930, made by the Brunswick Vocalion Record Company back then, of musicians either living in Knoxville or living just outside Knoxville in, say, the Great Smoky Mountains or um, up into eastern Kentucky. But among these 100 or so recordings were a number of recordings of great African-American singers and musicians living in Knoxville. 
at the time, people such as Leola Manning, a great blues singer, an urban blues singer, kind of in the spirit of Bessie Smith, kind of that same generation. Amazing uh, vocalist who's only made records in Knoxville for that one recording trip by that one record company. We were able to bring them all out and release them on CD in that box set. Another master musician that we were able to include on that box set was, of course, the great Howard Armstrong. His initial recordings were made there in Knoxville, and we were able to include them on this box set. And and other African-American musicians are on that box set as well. Well, let's listen to one of the tracks from a project you mentioned with Great Smoky Mountains Association. This is John Henry, the traditional blues ballad that many people will know from the album Big Bend Killing, a two-disc set available from Great Smoky Mountains Association at smokiesinformation.org. The tracks from this album are also available on all major digital music services online. Amethyst Kia and Roy Andrade are featured on this recording. So that was Amethyst Kia on vocals and guitar and Roy Andrade on banjo in that recording from the album Big Ben Killing that GSMA released in collaboration with one of our guests, Ted Olson. This collaboration was sort of the beginning of GSMA's effort to explore our region's music. Bill, what was your interest in doing a podcast about Black Appalachian music at this time? Well, my um, inspiration, going back to what I said earlier in terms of my my family also um, was a, a house filled with music. Our mother was uh, a musician. She played piano in a kind of rock and roll band, so to speak, in a jazz band in the 30s and the 40s when we were growing up. But she also played piano for the same church for 52 years. But beyond that, in terms of inspiration, it goes back to my longtime interest in Black people in Appalachia, period. In 1985, uh, I was part of publishing a book called Blacks in Appalachia with the late Ed Cabell. And Ed was himself an accomplished musician and folklorist with a a degree, the first master's degree in Black Appalachian studies, which he took from Appalachian State. And I got to meet Ed through Law Jones and John Stevenson, who used to be the president of Berea College. But earlier in the 60s, in the mid 60s, John Stevenson was my undergraduate advisor when I was uh, in 1966, I was 20 years old uh, when I met John. And at that time he was professor of sociology at the University of Kentucky. So uh, these guys, tended to formalize what my father had tried to teach us to appreciate about 
Appalachian culture, because where I grew up in, in Eastern Kentucky, as I said earlier, most of the black people in my father and mother's generation were migrants to that area, primarily from central Alabama. My mother had been born in Harlan County in a little town called Benham, Kentucky. My father, as I said earlier, was born in Wise County, Virginia. So uh, one of the things I noticed quickly, conspicuously, when we started down the path of trying to learn about black history and culture in the mountains of the South is the absence of a body of literature that dealt specifically with the music of Blacks in the mountains. You could find things about migration. You could find things from Ron Lewis about mining. You could find things from Ron Eller and Harry Caudle and different people who wrote about the mountains. But at that time, C.C. Conway, I think was her name, she had not done that work on the Black banjo, for example, banjo players. So Cecil, Cecil Sharp, yeah, you know, he came and did that, but he also tended to ignore and pay very little attention to Black people and their music in the mountains. So I was inspired to get interested here in this type of music, in this podcast in particular, because we're filling a void, a, a great void. Uh, uh, and I don't mean to, to discredit uh, all the work that Ted just talked about. But the general public does not know very much about Black Appalachian music. So I'm just excited to be part of, of codifying this more specifically uh, than we've done up to this point. Well, we can't thank you enough for both of you bringing your scholarship on this topic of Appalachia and Black music in Appalachia to this podcast series, Sepia Tones. And we know it's just going to be a fascinating series. Well, we look forward to it. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. William Turner and Dr. Ted Olson for launching this special series, Sepia Tones, as part of Smoky Mountain Air. And thank you so much for your time today. Thanks. Thank you. Glad to be here. Dr. William Turner and Dr. Ted Olson are the co-hosts of Sepia Tones, Exploring Black Appalachian Music. A podcast miniseries will be featuring here on Smoky Mountain Air over the next several months. We leave you with another recording from Amethyst Kia and Roy Andrade, this one from an album called On Top of Old Smoky, New Old Time Smoky Mountain Music. This and other GSMA-produced music is available at our website, smokiesinformation.org. Here's Going Down This Road Feeling Bad. episodes in our series Smoky Mountain Air from Great Smoky Mountains Association to come soon and more episodes of our featured mini-series Sepia Tones. In addition to selections by Amethyst Kia and Roy Andrade from GSMA's Big Bend Killing, 
and on top of old Smoky albums. This episode featured three music snippets, My Homes Across the Smoky Mountains by Sparky Rucker from the Digital Library of Appalachia's Berea College Collection. John Hardy by Martin Simpson featuring Don Flemons on harmonica and bones, which is also from the On Top of Old Smoky album. And Key to the Highway by the Faudrell Brothers from the Berea Sound Archive. Our theme music is from Old Time Smoky Mountain Music, GSMA's Grammy-nominated music collection available at smokiesinformation.org. Bird recordings by Mark Dunaway. Thanks for listening. Great Smoky Mountains Association supports the perpetual preservation of Great Smoky Mountains National Park and the National Park System by promoting greater public interest and appreciation through education, interpretation, and research. Thank you.